Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a writer, and a speaker. And on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. My name is Eric Oltrop, and I'll be your guest host for this episode. Today, we're going to discuss the rise of communism in the Western world. Aaron, I know you just returned from Eastern Europe, and some of the people you met kind of commented on Canada and how it's sounding more and more of like what they experienced under communism. So can you comment on this? Susie, uh, Susie and I had a great trip to Romania. Uh, we have a, a church there that um, we sponsor, and the, the pastor, I sort of serve as his, his coach. Um, we're, we're very happy to be able to go back. We were in Romania in 2019. Because of the pandemic, we weren't able to get back there, but we, we were able to encourage the launch of a church that started three years ago. So we went over and did some teaching and preaching, and um, I was able to speak on a, a radio station there and spend time with their elders, and it was a great experience. And of course, as you spend time with people that you love, you talk about your homeland and some of the things that are going on. And I was describing, and they're they're well aware of what's going on in Canada because we have ongoing conversations, but I was describing more fully some of the uh, ideological shifts that we've seen in our country over the past several years. And they all pretty much agreed that that sounds a lot like some of the ideologies that were underlying um, communism mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe. And many of them have parents that uh, suffered through that. I talked to an aged pastor who had pastored for 30 years. About 20 of that was under communism before communism came crashing down in and around 1989. And he just said it, w- it was horrible. And so I thought it would be interesting to spend a little bit of time today warning and and also I, I I want to encourage our listeners to think about the the horrific nature of communism and its its new forms in Canada, the United States, the UK and other parts of Europe and then just think about how we can respond to it uh, productively. Now we know Eric, we don't idolize civilization and we don't cling too tightly to the things of this world. Civilizations come and go. The West as we know it, which is um, over a thousand years old now, uh, we've seen the decline of many values in, in Western civilization, many of the liberties and fights that our forebears fought to secure liberty and freedom of religion economic prosperity, many of these things are under attack by a new form of what I believe is communism in the West. And we mourn that, but we don't idolize it because we do know that God can work even through tyrannical situations and even if we lose our liberties and many more nasty things happen in our culture, God will still build his church. So I just want to throw that out at the beginning. God will still build his church, and that's that's a great thing. So we don't mourn it. But at the same time, uh, we should honor the work of past Christians. In Hebrews 11, uh, the great Hall of Faith chapter, there is a list there of the names of actual human beings that lived that stood for their faith and their beliefs. So I think while that 
certainly doesn't relate specifically to Western civilization. Um, there's nothing wrong with with honoring and looking back at the the work of past believers, God-fearing individuals, and their stand for Christ, and honoring them and learning from from the de- the decisions and the principles that they stood for. And in, in the in the modern era, we can think about. Christians that were part of the abolition of slavery, Christians that started hospitals, Christians that started justice missions or educational institutions to expose people to education that was grounded in in God's law. These are things we we appreciate. And mm-hmm. so on one hand, we don't want to idolize Western culture to the point that you know we think we can't live without it, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong, and there's something very right, actually, about honoring the efforts of past believers and the various accomplishments that that they um, they secured for us. It's interesting. A lot of people talk about being led by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and they generally what they generally mean by that is uh, we, we want to hear the voice of God, the voice of the Spirit in our generation, and we forget about the fact that God has worked in previous generations. So hearing their voices, hearing their warnings from the past uh, as they were led by the Holy Spirit is a wise thing for us to consider uh, as well. And the other reason why I have a passion to preserve and reinvigorate Western civilization is because historically much of it, I mean, there's many imperfections in it, of course, uh, but much of it is based on biblical law. And so to the degree that it's based upon biblical law, you know, God's laws uh, preserve life and uh, reduce evil. And why would we not want to promote that sort of thing in our own context? Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's true. I agree with, with all that. Um, so about European communism, when, when did that originate and why is it so attractive after World War II? Yeah, that's a good question. If you think about it, we we have this very negative view of communism in Eastern Europe, and we should. But there were there were some underlying reasons why communism took hold in the pre World War II, primarily post World War II Europe. Back in those days, many of these countries had significant class divisions. So you were part of the bourgeoisie, you were part of uh, noble families, you controlled industry, you controlled land, you controlled government, your family alone had access to, for instance, the average person couldn't run for public office, you had to be part of the bourgeoisie, the aristocrats, the upper crust, the elitists, if you will, of society. And everyone else was considered the proletariat, you know, the peasants, the, the the people that were working the land for noblemen, and people got sick and tired of this. And so over time, you know, people like Karl Marx promoted these philosophies, hey, we need to create a more just world. There's the haves and the have-nots. This resonated in the ears of many peasants, and there were various revolutions and revolts across Europe. Communism took on different forms, depending on the context that you you were in. But uh, you know, you can understand. You look at the Industrial Revolution. There were many factory workers that were very, very poorly treated, poorly paid, abused mm. uh, in many different ways by their their overlords, and the 
the solution that communism advertises, hey, let's level the playing field. Let's let's make it all even, Stephen. The word communism, think of communal. Hey, community, let's all let's all pool our resources, let's pool our talent, let's all get along. This sounds almost like a utopian kind of world. And so it was very attractive for people to sign on for communism. It sounded just, much like socialism in the minds of some sounds like biblical justice today. Oh, socialism. Why should the corporate giants have all the money? Uh, we should tax the rich and redistribute it to the poor. And it sounds like justice. It sounds like community life. It sounds like we're all just one big family. And we hear this out of the mouths of many socialist politicians, even in our own country. Let's the, the, the big corporation owners are all the bad guys. The factory workers and the employees are the good guys. They can never really get ahead. And so we need to penalize and punish and heavily tax the corporate bourgeoisie so that the proletariat can live life to the fullest. And on the surface, it sounds like, it almost sounds biblical, but here's the thing. When you pull the curtain back, you discover that there's a group of people that are necessary to control the new system. And this is what happened with communism. It sounded like community. It sounded like unity. It sounded like justice. And we have the rise of various communist parties, and they grabbed power, supposedly for the sake of the people, and made their lives like hell. Mm -hmm. Because they then, see, God alone is benevolent. God alone has the ability to truly rule and guide humanity with absolute love and affection for his creatures. Now we're to mimic that if we're in positions of authority, but we don't actually have the capacity to be fully and completely benevolent. And certainly someone who's a atheistic a Marxist, a commie leader doesn't have the capacity right. to be benevolent either. So what would happen is you would have these communist dictators that would then penalize and punish anyone that didn't obey the rules. So you you basically took the bourgeoisie, got rid of them, and replaced them with, with hyper-tyrants. So this, again, this took place in different ways. There was a couple countries that had separate communist regimes throughout Europe and even into Asia. Obviously, the largest one that most people would be familiar with was the USSR, the United Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic. Mm -hmm. And that... That formed in 1947, and and when the Berlin Wall came down in you know 1989, that kind of marked the end of that. Um, so there were there were very various revolutions. I was interested in hearing the story from some of my Romanian friends about how there was actually a Christian preacher in a town in the western side of Romania called Timisoara. I've pr I've preached there before pre previously, and it was a Christian preacher that in many respects was the catalyst. He started preaching against communist control. Uh, there was a, a massive protest that broke out in Timisoara. The government tried to quench that. The dictator decided he was going to call a bunch of people together in the capital and uh, have a big party to affirm his leadership. And in the middle of his speech, the people revolted and he took off in his helicopter. And I think he was executed within mm. maybe a week. So there was different scenarios that rose up, but it, it was attractive because people actually believed, and this is where we want to issue a warning to our listeners. People believed 
that the people with the microphone were for them, not against them. And they listened to them and they they villainized and vilified the bourgeoisie, the noble families. And we see that today in the West. So if you're a corporation, you're bad. If you're white, you're bad. And you're a racist. If you have any economic um, means mm -hmm. at your disposal, you're a bad person. Uh, the if you're heterosexual, you're bad. If you're having too many children, you're bad. You're part of the problem. So there's this there's this new bourgeoisie and this new proletariat being formed along different lines, but it's the same basic separating and dividing of the people into this new class structure, which I want to discuss, which should should be a cause for much concern for for all of us. Yeah. Okay, so how about how about you can tell us some of the immediate effects of communism in Europe and just like the devastating after effects of one after like even after it ended. Mm -hmm. Well, according to to Karl Marx and his uh, partner in crime, you could say Engels, the, the proletariat was being taken advantage of by the bourgeoisie. So this is really important. So the, the com he was speaking to the common man. The common man was being taken advantage of by the people in power. And this message was driven home over and over again in his writings and in his speeches. The same, the same claim is made repeatedly by soft communists, socialists in our own culture today. So if you follow, for example, I'll just give you one example. In Canada, we have a party called the NDP, the New Democrat Party. The leader of that party is Jagmeet Singh. And Jagmeet Singh is incessantly and repeatedly attacking big corporation CEOs, blaming them for inflation, blaming them for grocery prices, taking no responsibility for government policies, high taxation, but blaming the corporate executives, men like Galen Weston, who was the CEO or president, I'm not sure what his title exactly was, of Loblaws, a large yeah. grocery chain. And so uh, they've, they've men like that have successfully created in the minds of many Western people this notion that, again, if you have money or if you have power, you're bad. And that was fundamental to the message of communism in Western Europe. So one of the after effects of it is you come out of a system like that and you think of anybody with power or authority or money as being bad. And and I was talking to my pastor friend there and he was saying this was actually a problem in the church even after communism fell that many people felt so oppressed by those that were in authority that a lot of the churches mistakenly became like radical democracies. And democracy sounds like a positive word, but democracy is in the church is, um, it has no place in the church. The church is not a democracy. The church is, is governed by elders. Mm -hmm. And while all Christians in the church have equal standing under God, we're all made in the image and likeness of God, we all have opportunities to use our spiritual gifts and serve both within the church institute and in the broader culture, it's not in, in the in the area of authority. It's not like an even playing field. Um, sometimes you almost get the impression too among Christians that if they see a rich Christian, and God forbid, if you happen to be wealthy and you're in a pastoral role or the, the, a denominational leader role, 
you're like a bad person. So there's this, one of the after effects of communism is this weird idea that if you're quote unquote wealthy, powerful, or authoritative, you are the enemy. Mm-hmm. And that, and that when you are raised in a culture where you're taught that, it's hard to be, to be untaught that. Um, this is one of the, the consequences of, of, uh, you know, not teaching people economics, um, exposing people to, to teachers that are, think about it, our public school teachers receive their paycheck from the state. And therefore, by definition, they lean in the direction of statism. Even if they're not statists formally, they're required to go to teachers' protests and union meetings and uh, picket when they don't. When there's collective bargaining agreements and this sort of thing being taught. So when you have state-funded teachers that are teaching generations of students, you by necessity create a statist mindset among the populace. Mm-hmm. And again, coming out of Europe, there was there still are, are vestiges of the statist ideology that exist in, in many um, uh, you know, countries in, in Europe. So um, th- these are some of the, the, the consequences, of course, on a very practical level, when people are raised in communist regimes. And communism, by the way, is just the um, uh, Marxism. It's Marxism expressed in government. So Marxism has many manifestations in culture. Communism is the way that Marxism works itself out in statecraft or in government. But in the broader culture, communism, it actually results in a reduced intellect. So if, if, if people aren't allowed to speak freely, one of the things we value in the West historically is free speech. Mm-hmm. So if you have free speech or you value free expression, that means you have to give time for wise people to speak and you have to give time for fools to speak. And in the public exchange of ideas, as people debate and speak freely, the idea is that the wise eventually, uh, I don't want to say denigrate, but the wise eventually win out over foolishness. So if someone says something stupid that's that's a lie, that's false, wise people speak out and they, they attack that lie and they show the, the weak spots in that lie or mm-hmm. the, the, the dangers in that lie and truth prevails. So you want free speech. In a society that, if, if you want true intellectual advancement and development, you, you have to give time for both wise people and fools to speak. And you might that might sound counterintuitive. Why don't we just let the wise people speak? Well, who determines who the wise people are until they speak? Right. And until you hear them speak in relationship to fools. So free speech was lost in in Europe during communism. And so you have a reduced intellectual capacity. You have a reduction of cult cultural, the cultural intellect, if I could use that language, is reduced. It also de-incentivizes work. If you're told you're going to work. You'll work X number of hours a week, but there's no there's no advancement for you. You'll never be promoted. It doesn't mean you'll ever own land. It doesn't mean you'll ever own property. You can't actually do what you want with your money. It actually de-incentivizes work. Why would I ever go to work? Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in a free market society, when there's an incentive, if if you don't go to work, you don't you don't get paid. In fact, mm-hmm. the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So there's this biblical notion that work. We, we sometimes shirk it or avoid it, but when there's an incentive attached to it and when there's consequences to not working, we're more likely to want to work. And this benefits everyone. 
So there's it de-incentivizes work, and when it de-incentivizes work, it de-incentivizes technological development. A lot of the inventions that people have created over time, the technological inventions, were created by people who had hobbies or special interests, and they poured their time into it, looking to maybe create something no one's created before, develop some something that no one's developed before, patent it, make their money. Again, it it incentivizes when there's a free market. It incentivizes technological development. But if if there's no incentive attached to it, you're never going to get anything for it. Human nature is, well, then I'm not going to work for it. There's a blurring of lines in terms of um, authority. So when the state claims authority over all of life, then people get confused about the role of the husband, the clergyman, the the parent, all of those those different spheres of authority kind of get mixed up and 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 blended together. So all sorts of um, problems. What what communism did is it just it kind of nationalized and confiscated everything. It, right. It it nationalized industry, so there's no longer private ownership of industry. Everything's owned by the government. It confiscated property. What's the point of pulling weeds on property I don't even own? It's like with renters. Renters are known not to take as good of care of the property as owners. It's true. Because they are they have no incentive to. It's like the faucet broke. Who cares? I pay rent. Fix my faucet. The, the, the garden's overgrown. What's the point of me investing my time in it when I don't own it? This is the problem with communism. This is the problem with socialism. It de-incentivizes work. It de-incentivizes uh, a, a sense of healthy ownership or even stewardship, we could say, over... Um, the government uh, or over your property. Pro- communism also created a lot of emotional problems for people. People are traumatized by it. I mean, if you disagreed, if you put up your hand and asked a question, you in some places you literally could get killed for it. So there's, there's, there was all sorts of nasty, negative consequences to, eighth, to, to communism. And you would think that people would have learned from it. But while while Eastern European communism was was largely foisted upon the people through militaristic means, the new form of communism is being foisted upon us through ideological battles, through ideological means. And this is why it's perhaps even more dangerous than the old forms of communism, because it's harder for many people to see an ideology creeping up on them than it is for them to see a tank, you know, creeping up on them. Right. I'll just say one more one more thing about this. People need to understand this. Communism is by nature atheistic. It's atheistic in that instead of appealing to God and God's laws for our understanding of economics, work, spheres of authority, uh property ownership, freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, these sorts of things. This, the, the, the communist, the, the Marxist, so Karl Marx, for example, was a materialist. He rejected, he thought the notion of God was nonsense. He taught that we live in a material world. You, your value is in your material productivity. My value is in my material productivity. And therefore, uh, there's, there's no place for God you're born, you work, you die. You are, in essence, a machine, and your job is to produce material goods. That's the most lofty objective you could you could go after. 
So there's no, without God, what you create is a society where there's no beauty, there's no virtue, there's no moral responsibility. It's very dehumanizing. And that that um, message changes culture. I remember in 2005 and 2006 being in China, and China is still a very communistic country, although yeah. they have some free market aspects they've added to it in recent decades. And I don't know how to describe this other than to say that when you're there, there's just a certain, like it's an interesting place, but the the effects of atheism upon that culture for many decades, you feel dehumanized. Like the way people look at you in the street, the way you're treated, the way the impoverished, the poor, children are treated in public, disabled people are treated in public. They're, it's like nobody cares about uh, others. You're not acknowledged. Nobody opens doors for you. Nobody reaches out and gives the proverbial cup of water to the man that's laying on a you know piece of cardboard on the street. The this this is not about this is not a problem with the genetic makeup of Chinese people. This is not a a racial comment, a a, a comment about their ethnicity. It's about culture. The constructs that we create, that we govern ourselves by, have an effect on human behavior. And atheism is horrible and you know leads to many devastating consequences on a culture, which we're seeing increasingly in the West, where people just really don't care about each other anymore. Mm -hmm. Survival of the fittest, right? Like, watch out for yourself. You're number one, and that's all that really matters. I remember seeing a, a man on... He, he was a disabled gentleman. He, he had very short limbs, his arms and legs. I'm not sure if he was injured or if he was born that way, but yeah. he was he was very small, but he was an adult. And he was laying on a, a piece of um, plywood, maybe, maybe three or four feet long by a foot and a half wide. Uh, on the street with some little wheels under it, like a little rolly cart. Yeah begging and nobody was paying attention to him. There were thousands of people walking by him in that whole vicinity uh, day after day and he was just left there to beg. He was treated worse than you would treat a dog in the West. And mm. I just thought, man, that, that, that right there, that's the effects of atheism mm -hmm. upon a culture. That's the effects of atheism. People are like, oh, I'm intellectually an atheist. I'm an atheist because I've never received the evidence to prove that there's a God. Okay, well, you can you can talk about your atheism from a philosophical perspective all you want, but have you considered the practical consequences of an atheistic worldview? You don't matter. Life doesn't matter. People don't matter. It literally is a dog-eat-dog -dog world, mm -hmm. and and it's it's sad to see. But so because communism is predicated upon an atheistic worldview. It does lead to that lifelessness, that hopelessness, the um, denigration of the value of human life. Which and makes sense. Yeah. 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 So after communism officially ended in Europe, it didn't immediately turn to normal, did it? No, there, there's, there were a lot of problems. If, for instance, if, if the, the slow march of communism through the Western world, if, if suddenly everybody agreed we got to end it tomorrow, it, it wouldn't end tomorrow. 
So worldviews and cultural issues like this have lasting effects upon the psyche, the culture, the collective consciousness of, of nations. When, um, when communism ended in Europe, there were, there were all sorts of problems. I was talking to a man who's done some, he actually, he's been to Romania many, many times, maybe 10, 20, 30 times doing uh, missionary work there, like after the Berlin Wall came down and then Ceausescu was kicked out of Romania. Yep. He, um, he would take uh, food items, clothing into, into Romania. And he said, one of the things, he's a horticulturalist, and he said, one of the things that I thought was really weird is you would drive through the countryside and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hectares of land with no crops planted in them. And he's like, why are, why, are, why are people starving in Romania? Like, why are they not out plowing the fields and planting soy and corn and yeah. wheat and barley and everything else? Well, when the communists took hold there, they burned a lot of the property records. And so people being opportunistic as they are, when communism fell, you'd have maybe 15 people show up and say, okay, we used to own this land, give it to us. And the government's like, well, we don't know who's telling the truth. So this land would be left fallow uh, sometimes for years, if not maybe a decade or longer before they could determine the rightful ownership. So as a result, there was every, everything was messed up in terms of private ownership, which had an effect upon their ability to produce food, which obviously had an effect upon people's poverty and starvation wow. levels. Um, in the church, I, I alluded to this earlier, but uh, one of the Romanians was telling me that it, it was a major problem to get people to submit to church discipline or church authority in the church after communism because everybody just hated authority, period. They're traumatized, right? They're traumatized yeah. by it. No one's going to tell me what to do. We've been told what to do for 50 years. No one's going to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And so all authority suddenly became suspect. It, it's kind of like if, um, if a father, let's say, abuses his, uh, his daughter, Potentially, unless she really thinks through the lies that he's taught her and, and finds healing in Christ, she might live the rest of her life hating men mm -hmm. or, or hating father figures. And it's not that there's anything necessarily logical to that feeling that she has, but it's, it's very emotional, it's psychological. So right. there's a psychological emotional damage upon nations that have... Uh, suffered under communist regimes. It's interesting that in the West, we idolize secularism because secularism sounds like the opposite of communism. It's like the ultimate leveler. Everyone, there's freedom for everybody to, to get along and worship their own God and do their own thing. But actually, it's almost the exact it's like it's like the kissing cousin to communism. Right. Because its claim is the same as communism. Everybody has you know very similar to communism to be more accurate. Everyone has equal opportunity to to kind of do their thing, right? To be radically autonomous. But again, when you pull back the curtain, someone has to be controlling that and someone has to be maintaining that. And who's going to maintain control in a secular society? better than the government. Mm -hmm. So the government, they don't go around calling themselves gods, of course, but they, pro, they, they function that way in a secular environment. And we've seen that problem in 
the the West and that secular governments who claim to be to be trying to maintain a, a level playing field for all people, they dismiss God's, they dismiss our God and His laws, and they they become atheist tyrants that want to then control. There's always someone out there looking to pass a new law to control what your property, to define what marriage is, to control how and when and who's going to educate your children to control, as we've seen during the pandemic, your private medical choices, to control what you can say in public, to accuse you of being guilty of hate speech if you don't say what they've approved that you're allowed to say or can't say. So this, this the, the grand myth, you could say, of secularism is that it's spiritually neutral, and it's evidently not. In fact, when I talk about the rule of God in society, a lot of people say, oh, well, that's not, you know, we don't want to take it too far. You know, Christianity is about going to heaven and being justified by grace through faith in Jesus. And it's about, you know, the afterlife. And we, past Christians, have abused their authority. I get it. I get it. Uh, the gospel um, hinges on our redemption in Christ and our justification. And we, we, of course, we do want to find eternal life and hope and healing in Christ. We, we preach that all the time. Um, but Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And even if past Christians have got it wrong in terms of how that should be applied to culture, that doesn't mean that we should be trying to get it, shouldn't be trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's King of kings, which is a political term, Lord of lords, which is a political term, has to mean something in the here and now in terms of how he rules the nations, in terms of legal structures and education and sphere of sovereignty and all these sorts of topics that we've spoken about on on past shows. But the, the secular, the true secular government is actually usurping God's rightful role. They want to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the veil has been torn off, and it's clear that they're acting that way in, in Canada and, and maybe to a slightly lesser degree in the U.S. and in the U.K. and other Western nations. So on that note, in what sense are we seeing the elements of communism take hold in Canada? Well, again, it's not militaristic yet. Right. Although there's probably aspects of that because they certainly have the police in their back pocket. Mm -hmm. We see the Hamilton Police Department here in Ontario uh, was putting out tweets, I think, last week, basically promoting the LGBTQ agenda. Mm -hmm. So they've been hijacked by cultural Marxism. So there, but it's not militaristic yet, but it's certainly ideological. So let me give some some examples of where we see a sort of a neo-communism, a, a new form of communism rising in our own country. So where where better to start than with some, a, a couple of direct comments from the prime minister of our country? So the, if you listen to the prime minister of our country speak, as this is a matter of public record. Uh, he has, on more than one occasion, publicly praised communistic leaders or dictators. Let me let me give you a couple examples of this. We see that he has some sort of a strange alliance with China, which is a horrible communist regime. Right. But but because they have a certain free market aspect to their communism, and it benefits us to do trade with them, it's like they get a pass, even though they're throwing Christians in jail and mm-hmm. kicking kicking in the doors of house churches and arresting people and controlling free speech and all that sort of stuff. But in, in 2013, this is a direct quote from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. 
In 2013, Justin Trudeau said this. Here's the quote. There's a level of admiration I actually have for China. Their basic dictatorship is allowing them to actually turn their economy around on a dime, end quote. It's like, really? You have a level of admiration for a, you, you admit they're a basic dictatorship. Yeah. Well, that's not a bad system to be a dictator because you can work your magic economically quicker than in a free market, in a true democracy. It's like, what? What, the, what in the world is going through your mind? And then Fidel Castro, he was a tyrant in Cuba under the, the communist regime. Right. When, when he died, this is what Trudeau said. This is a quote. You can find this online. It's, I'm just going to read the first couple of sentences. This is Justin Trudeau's public uh, statement <clears throat> pertaining to the death of Fidel Castro. Quote, it is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest-serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century, a legendary revolutionary and orator. Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation, end quote. Really? People are still driving around there in 70-year-old cars. Yeah. Being persecuted and tormented by the communist regime. But our own supposedly democratically oriented prime minister is praising current communist regimes, because the ones in Europe have fallen, like Cuba and China. Mm -hmm. Well, that says something. And he's the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. Uh, secondly, look at his allies. Even we have a multi-party system in Canada, but... In, in, in order to prop up his minority government, who's he in bed with? He's in bed with the most left-leaning party of significance in office, uh, the NDP. If it wasn't for the NDP, there'd probably been a vote of confidence by now. So the NDP is like left of left of left. Yeah. Very, I mean, they're definitely commie light. And that's his you know unholy alliance. We also... Another thing for us to consider is the warning. So we may not see it. If you're, if you're born in the West, your family, your grandma's from the West, your great grandpa's from the West, you're from the West, and you, you you have no exposure to what went on in Cuba or what's going on in China or what went on in Romania or USSR, you might think, I I don't even know what communist looks like, communism looks like. But when you listen to people from countries like Romania saying, man, that that kind of behavior sounds an awful lot like what we saw when communism started to take hold, where there massive taxation. There's people that pay over half of their income to the state. Mm -hmm. That de-incentivizes work. When you you buy a piece of property, try to build something on it, there's so much red tape and bureaucracy you have to jump through that people are just like forget it. I'm just I'm not even going to bother building. That de-incentivizes development. Um. When when you have an idea and you want to share it freely, but you know you're not part of legacy media, so you don't have the platform. Uh, you know you you get canceled by the the CRTC or whatever whatever the bureaucratic uh, hurdles happen to be in your province or country or nation or state. It de incentivizes work. So we we're hearing from our brothers and sisters in former communist countries. You better be careful. So when Trudeau made this comment about China many years ago, 
a lot of Chinese Canadians that fled communism are like, well, that is the most foolish thing you could possibly say. Why are you praising the dictators in China? Yeah. But it's like, oh, well, whatever. That's just the Chinese immigrants kicking up a stink. Yawn, you know, go back to watching TV or voting for Justin the next time around. Um, and then and then we see very clearly the rise of a new form of Marxism, cultural Marxism, it's called, or neo Marxism, meaning new Marxism in the West, which is the necessary philosophy that undergirds political communism, and it's it's um, it's undeniable that Marxism is rampant in in Western civilization. It's the it's the underlying philosophy of our existence it, in in the West in an increasing way, and it's governing principles and its philosophy applied to the way governments run and operate is communistic. So so communism is essentially Marxism's expression in the way that a nation is governed. And because Marxism is becoming the dominant belief system in the West, it's inevitably leaking into the way our nations are being governed. Okay, so I, I have a question. We've heard a couple terms, you know, we've heard of communism um, and then Marxism and neo-Marxism. So what about what about socialism? That's that's a term we've heard we hear a lot here in Canada. What can you define what exactly is that, how that relates to, to all this? Yeah, well socialism is is basically the the weaker brother of communism. So this idea of a social collective where you you know you rob from um Peter to pay Paul, where you, you the person with the big ch- paycheck has a greater responsibility to support the guy with the lo- lower paycheck, yeah. and the government takes its cut in the as the middleman in the process. Where um, there's discussions about universal income, uh, where people won't have to work in order to get paid. Um, the the new the rise of the new proletariat, the victims, whether it's the addicts or the visual minorities or the immigrants they they are the victims and again if you have money power authority you're the bad guy i mean if you want to see socialism personified just pay attention to what the ndp party says because they are social democrats yeah to me all these terms and ideologies they sound like almost identical yeah they, they overlap so, for yeah. example, Marxism, communism, socialism. There's, there's different formal definitions to these things, but they all overlap. So, Marxism's a, a materialistic philosophy. Out of that, you have uh, when it's applied to government, you have communism. When it's applied to government and social relationships, you have socialism. So, it's all, it's all interrelated. Right, and, and it is, it's dominant. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even people in Christian churches that are business owners start to buy into some of these lies and they start to act like communists or socialists in terms of how they perceive of economics and these sorts of things. I just feel like the language is more palatable than communism, right? Because once you hear communism, like everyone associates communism is bad, but socialism is a little more, it's just more palatable to people. Yeah, you watch the movies, uh, you know, Red October or whatever it might be. Yeah. And communism still is is stigmatized, um, but Marxism should be stigmatized as well. But increasingly, people are 
very comfortable referring to themselves as cultural Marxists or neo-Marxists. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All so right. um, I want to talk a little bit about what Marxism or neo-Marxism actually actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, it's materialism in the place of God. So God, God's excluded from, from Marxist philosophy and the material world is the be-all and end-all. And that squares up with Darwinian theory as a, as a theory of human origins. Um, it, uh, it makes sense out of why people often pursue material possessions um, to, to the exclusion of the development of any virtues or value systems. Secondly, it's, it's very much grounded in critical theory. So critical theory, this is a term that people are increasingly becoming familiar with in discussions of culture and cultural theology. Critical theory, essentially, if, I just want, if you want to make it really simple, it's about dismantling power structures in order to create equality. So then out of critical theory, which is the broader term, you have queer theory. You have uh, systemic racial theory. These are all like critical theories. And critical theory, this is where it plays the role of God. Critical theory teaches that you can create a utopian society, kind of a heaven on earth, without the need for a God or any transcendent being to look to, to, to guide your decisions, your, your values, your virtues. So in order to create a utopian world, you have to eradicate power structures. Mm-hmm. And the way that ancient form of Marxism is applied in the present world, in neo-Marxism, is you know back in the day in Europe, it was uh, the bourgeoisie, they were the bad guys. The kings and noblemen, they, they were all the bad people. Uh, now, not to say that they were ever perfect, of course, and right. there needed there did need to be some reforms. But I'm not I'm not justifying feudal systems. I'm not saying the czars of Russia or the kings were all great people or the landowners were all great people. But they carte blanche vilified anyone that had power. So critical theory is trying to bring about a utopian world by eradicating power structures, namely whiteness. So whiteness is associated with oppression. If you're white, you are, and even if you don't know you are, even if you're not aware of the fact you are, you are an oppressor, and the non-white are the oppressed. This is this connected to this idea of systemic racism, that you can be a racist without even knowing you're a race, just based on your race. Uh, another way that that would be expressed as in colonialism. Now, are we going to argue that when the Europeans came to North America that everything they did was good? No, we're not going to argue that. But it would it would be very wrong to say that the majority of what they did was bad, too. It's, it's a false narrative to say they went around slaughtering and killing and indiscriminately maiming an indigenous people. It's, it's not historically accurate. There were wars and skirmishes among Indian tribes before Europeans arrived. There were injustices committed against um, indigenous people by Europeans. There were injustices committed against um, Europeans by indigenous people. That's the history of the world. We're not justifying it, but there's this grand narrative that if you are a colonialist, you know you're 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 bad. You're trying to uh, colonize uh, someone else's property and you know destroy their their identity and their heritage. Christianity, of course, uh, needs to be eradicated because it's a power structure. It 
it represents a uh, a worldview that uh, you know apparently hinges on global domination and these sorts of um, uh, gross exaggerations or misrepresentations of the nature of true Christianity. Masculinity is a power structure. Gender is a power structure that suppresses women or quote unquote sexual minorities. Capitalism. Uh, there's a lot of critiques of capitalism by critical theorists. The family itself is a power structure that needs to be dismantled. All of these things are in the crosshairs of critical theor- uh, critical uh, theorists. Mm. And as they attack, be it masculinity or whiteness, or as they promote their fake racism or they attack colonialism or whatever it might be, it's all cloaked in the language of social justice. Mm. You know, we're we're the just ones. We're the ones trying to bring about a, a more equal world, a more a, a world where there's equal footing for all and equal opportunities for all religions and belief systems and sexual identities. And and that's how they get their foothold because they 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 pretend like they're Mr. Rogers. You know, they mm. pretend like they're they're for you when in actual fact they're against you. So Corporations are bad guys. They, they're promoting universal income, um, and and again, people need to see this. It's not it's not so much through militaristic means, but it's a subversive ideological march through our universities and through our our police departments mm-hmm. and our um, houses of legislation. So, who if people were to ask, well, who, who are the new proletariat? Who are the new oppressed people in under neo-Marxism? Well, anybody that's part of the LGBTQ, they're they're all oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're the ones that are the the heterosexuals or the bourgeoisie. They're the ones that are attacking and oppressing and suppressing the the um, LGBTQ uh, communities, as they would call them. Even though they're not communities, they're they're not like an ethnic group. They don't live in one location, but they they declare themselves to be a community. It sounds mm-hmm. almost like a, an ethnic group or something. Racial minorities, anybody who's non-white. And even if you're non-white and you stand with the supposed bourgeoisie, then, then you need to be silenced as well. So it's like you, you can't win unless you side with the Marxists. Um, We've also noticed this, especially especially this summer, as people are starting to rise up and speak against the transgender efforts to inject kids with hormone treatments yeah. and chop body parts off. There's this uh, hyper-exclusivity that's connected with neo-Marxism. So neo-Marxism cannot coexist. I don't know if you've ever driven around town and you see people with a, a bumper sticker that says coexist and the, each letter is like a, a, the symbol of a major world religion. Yeah. You've got the Taoism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam and all this sort of stuff in there. The idea is let's let, let's let all the world religions coexist. Marx, Marxism does not allow for uh, any dissent. It does not allow, it, it says it's inclusive, but it's it's among the most exclusive of all worldviews on every level. Your your very existence is unwelcomed. 
if you don't buy into the Marxist agenda. Now, people might say, well, Christianity is very exclusive. Well, Christianity is exclusive in terms of its belief system, in terms of its worship system, in terms of the path of salvation, in terms of its doctrine. But Christians who understand the Scripture do not conquer nations by the sword and force Christianity. Have, have Christian peoples wrongly done that through history? Yes, but it was wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's no coercion in true biblical Christianity. We don't force people to point to the sword to become Christians mm -hmm. in our official theology. Again, sometimes there's some bad actors. Right. But Marxism is very much prepared to do that. You don't believe, you don't, you don't agree with our ideology, you're going to jail. You don't agree with our, our ideology, you will not teach in our universities. You don't agree with our ideology, you can't cross the border. You don't agree with our ideology, you can't go to work, whatever it might be. They're very, very, very exclus exclusionary, even with, um, even with corporations. So this is why a lot of people that run corporations are really, really stupid. They're running these big corporations, and the Marxists come to them and say, hey, um, if you if you really want brownie points with culture, you need to subscribe to our ESG scores, right? So you need to go through our training and this whole environment, social, corporate governance score. We want to score you. You want we want to give you a grade. We want to give you a rating that says, you know, you comply with our ideology. And a lot of the dummies running corporations are like, okay, that will give us cultural capital. Yeah. That will we're able to put a sticker on the door of our head office, or we're able to put on our website that we conform with the ESG scores. You know, we're climate friendly, we're pro LGBTQ, we're pro immigration, we're we're anti racism. All all of these different things that are connected to cultural um, Marxism. But actually, ESG scores and the philosophy behind it are innately anti-free market. So they're shooting themselves in the foot. Long term, this will come back to bite them because when to be free market means you need to be able to freely make as a board or governing body decisions that are for the best of your corporation to advance the interests of your shareholders. Well, now when you're beholden to the cultural Marxists that say, no, no, you can't build that new factory because um, there's a rare snakes that live on the property. Or regardless whether they're qualified or not, we want to see that 15% of your workforce is LGBTQ. Well, now the quality of your workforce declines. Or um, we, no, you can't build those cars anymore. You can't produce that product anymore because you know there's too much plastic in the ocean. Now you're not really participating in a free market economy. Yeah. You're under the controls of the neo-Marxists. And once the corporations are under the controls of the neo-Marxists and the educational institutions are under the control of the neo-Marxists, well, it's not too much of a stretch, it's already happened, for the, the government to become under the control of the neo-Marxists. And so then they start, because Marxism applied to government becomes communism, yeah. they start acting like communists. So now you have elections taking place in countries like Canada, but really <coughs> the, the elected officials are not representing the will of the people. They're representing the will of the cultural Marxists uh, in society. So their strategy, it's, it's actually quite genius. They take over the academy um, through that, they infect the church. 
because churches are made up largely of people that have been educated in public establishments. They control politicians. Now, there's a few politicians that will buck them. So you get the grassroots, down-to-earth farmers, factory worker politicians that every once in a while take office, like the Randy Hillier types. He's not going to put up with this garbage. But most politicians are elitists. They're 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 lawyers. They're um, lifelong um, politicians that have never really worked elsewhere. They get into power because of their last name, mm-hmm. Trudeau, um, Bush. They they get into power because they're they're part of the new elite, the 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 new the new true bourgeoisie. If you want to talk about bourgeoisie, let's let's expose the the elitist political yeah. families in our nation. They, they're, they're voted in, but really they kind of inherited their office because they wouldn't be in power if it wasn't for their last name or their connections. They take over the, the clergy. They take over the corporation. So um, this is sort of an, you know, a very general bird's eye view expose of what's taking place in our country. So that we, we may not be using the word communism in public, but it is sort of a neo-communism that's governing us. So where I want to land this plane is I want to talk a little bit about our response. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few thoughts come to mind. So obviously we want to be praying and we want to be preaching truth in the area of authority and uh, biblical economics and family structures and the way nations should be governed and what Christians should be doing and shouldn't be doing and all that sort of thing that applies to our role in society. But we also need to call out their lies. And the more people call out their lies, the better. Don't just let the few call out their lies. We need to call out lies when there's when people are promoting systemic racism. That That's a lie. It's a lie with an agenda attached to it. Uh, gender theory is a lie. These uh, socialistic economic theories are a violation of God's law. You, know, you, do, you do not have the right as the king to tax people to 50% of their income. Right. You, you do not have the right to confiscate people's property, to bar people from um, participating in um, uh, trade relationships because they're not jabbed. You, did, you don't have the right to do this. You don't have the right to rob from the rich and give to the poor. That's not the way God's laws are set up. There's, there's, God's laws have principles for how we deal with the poor, but that's not one of them. So we need to resist them. Another thing we can do is stop requiring state education. I'm going to just talk about this for a bit. So we have a Christian school at our church. Uh, our, all of our teachers have uh, bachelor's degrees and uh, from various institutions. But I know of a lot of Christian schools that require state-approved education in order to teach in their schools. You have to have a state-accredited degree with a state-accredited teaching license to teach Christian kids hmm. in their schools. Um, there are some denominations that require their clergy to go to a state-approved seminary. It has to be an accredited state-approved semi- seminary to be an ordained clergyman. These are errors. Now, not, not that coming out of these institutions makes you a bad person, but we need to stop— because requ- public education has essentially become public indoctrination, state indoctrination, and we need to stop requiring state-approved indoctrination for jobs. Stop idolizing public accreditation in a lot of our institutions. There's nothing wrong with, like, we we want people to be well-educated to teach in our school, and I want 
the key players on our church staff and our clergy to be well-educated people, good thinkers, but I couldn't give a hoot about whether their degrees are accredited by an institution that is Marxist. Right. In fact, I'd prefer they didn't go to a school that was Marxist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we need to stop, on one hand, fighting against the Marxists, but looking for their approval. So if you're an, um, if you're a person that has control over who's hired in your corporation or your business, just think about that a little bit. Tuck that away in the back of your mind. Is it possible for you to start to hire more and more people that that haven't come through state schools, that maybe came through private institutions, that were educated in non-traditional ways? This is a way of starting to push back against the indoctrination we see in a lot of um, public institutions. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that the next election is going to fix our problems. Um, politics matters. You know, we should vote intelligently, but. Uh, perhaps a greater way of, of changing culture is to, to live out Christian culture in your family. It's amazing how many Christians think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for the candidate of my choice, hoping that they change my province or state or government. Meanwhile, they're not living out uh, the, the values of Christianity in their own household or their own marriage. Hmm. But when we, when we marry and, and function in our marriage from a truly Christian worldview, and then we raise our kids in a Christian worldview, and we function as churches in a Christian worldview, and we do business under a Christian worldview. This is a powerful testimony to the world, and it's actually a beautiful and, in that sense, an attractive one mm-hmm. because it works. Yeah, you know, intact marriages, obedient kids that are smart, that are creative, that are talented. This is not what we're seeing coming out of a lot of our public institutions or in dysfunctional homes. So Christianity, uh, properly expressed in culture has the capacity to create that which is attractive and interesting to people that are just exposed to all these pagan, um, Marxist, antichrist, atheistic ideologies that just bring destruction. I mean, even when it comes to your kids, what's more attractive? Uh, An obedient boy or girl who does their homework and worships Christ and works when their parent you know, has chores for them, works and dresses like a boy if they're a boy or a girl if a girl. What's more attractive, that or some anarchist punk who's undergoing hormonal treatments, who has no respect for authority, you know, who's addicted to material possessions? What's really more attractive yeah. um, uh, even to the watching world? And then I would also say, don't take state funds because when they when you take state funds, they control you. If you're a, a, the owner of a corporation, you know you have an auto shop, you have a, a greenhouse, you have a private medical center, whatever it might be. Do not, do not uh, subscribe to this ESG garbage. Do not, as much as possible, uh, avoid uh, wherever you can. Sometimes it's not possible. Um, government inspections, uh, government approval, government ratings. Mm. Uh, You don't need this stuff. Uh, And I know there's times when the law requires you have to jump through hoops and loops. I get it. And and some of the regulations are are, are good. But um, it's it's a sad thing that so many uh, Christian businesses are trying to like keep up with the world. And so they start to, to compromise in, in who they hire and, um, 
you know, the accreditations or approvals that they voluntarily seek out. And we should avoid these things. And, and this over time helps to recreate and reshape culture. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for your insight and your, your wisdom on the return of communism. If you're listening to this podcast, we'd love it. If you could share it, that'd be awesome. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Be sure to rate us. It helps us a lot. So once again, thank you, Aaron, and thank you, listener, for listening. Be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.